You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. In February of 2020, Layla Micklewaite, Exodus Cries director of abolition at the time, published an op-ed titled Time to Shut Pornhub Down, bringing attention to the fact that Pornhub was hosting child pornography and videos of trafficking victims on the site. This sparked a petition and accompanying campaign, Trafficking Hub. Then, Pulitzer Prize winner Nicholas Kristof published a scathing expose at the New York Times called The Children of Pornhub, leading the company to suddenly leap to action, deleting 80% of their content overnight, around 10 million videos. Visa, MasterCard, and Discover cut ties with the site. Then, in 2021, Canadian Parliament began to investigate the Canadian-based company that owns Pornhub, MindGeek, and a number of lawsuits were filed against the company on behalf of survivors. Nicosi, the National Centre on Sexual Exploitation, filed several of these lawsuits, representing victims seeking justice against MindGeek. I spoke to Haley McNamara, director of the International Center on Sexual Exploitation in the UK and a vice president at the US-based National Center on Sexual Exploitation about the situation at Pornhub and Nicosi's efforts to stop exploitation in porn. Thank you so much for joining me on Feminist Current. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you. I I think that the work that you all are doing is so important. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you got involved in this issue, trafficking, pornography, mm-hmm. things like that, and and how did you come to be involved in Nicosi? Well, I think, you know, growing up as a woman in this world, everyone has personal experiences um, of some form of sexual victimization or especially, you know, close friends who I saw struggle with um, various issues. And so, I, so these issues are always kind of on the periphery of my life. And then uh, I was in college, went to Washington, D.C. for an internship. And I always knew, you know, I loved writing, but I didn't want to be a journalist. I didn't want to just write about anything. I wanted to work on something I really cared about. And I ended up getting um, a research project given to me to look at the links between pornography and sex trafficking. And I went down the rabbit hole, you know, all of the research Um, watching interviews, reading interviews with survivors on this link. And I actually remember walking up and down um, in front of DC monuments and I called my mom and I was actually in tears because I was saying, you know, I feel such a strong call to work on this issue. I feel like no one's talking about this. No one's recognizing that there's links between different forms of sexual abuse and exploitation. Like these things aren't completely disconnected. They overlap, they reinforce one another. And 
it's driving me crazy that I'm not, that people aren't just talking about this on the street. Um, and, but I was like, but this job doesn't exist. <laughs> There's no one actually doing this. Um, and strangely enough, I met Don Hawkins, the CEO of Nicosi, a couple weeks later. And yeah, just ended up joining with them right after college. So I've been with them about eight years now, four in a couple different hats. But that, and that's really what the a central philosophy of the organization is, is to recognize that these different forms of sexual exploitation and abuse do connect at different in different Venn diagrams. And so we want to create policies, both public and private, that reflect that reality and that, um, you know, stop those forms of abuse from proliferating, really. Mm-hmm. And can you tell me a little bit about what the National Center on Sexual Exploitation has done? You know, what, what specific work does the organization do? Yeah, so we do a couple things. Uh, we do state and federal public policy at the um, in the United States. We also do corporate advocacy, which I think is one thing that makes us a bit different. We uh, are regularly meeting with Google, Instagram, TikTok, all of these mega corporations that have such an impact on our lives and that very often are facilitating some form of sexual exploitation and abuse. So we meet with them and try to educate them. We bring survivors um, and parents even to the meetings as well to um, open up their eyes to things that they could be doing to prevent these things. But we also give people a chance to take action. So for example, we have a dirty dozen list which names 12 mainstream contributors um, to sexual exploitation every year. And it gives people a chance to take action so they can fill out a form and really quickly send an email to an executive at a major hotel com company or a major big tech company, or they could send pre-written tweets. You know, we've got draft um, content that pe people can push out. And the really exciting thing is it actually does make a difference. So... <clears throat> In the past, for example, we've gotten um, about four major hotel chains to stop selling on-demand pornography in the hotel rooms. One of those was Hilton Worldwide, and at one point, they came to they contacted us and said, "Okay, we've gotten a thousand emails from your supporters this last week telling us that they don't want us to be selling pornography anymore. Let's have a conversation." Um, so it, it's been encouraging that way because I really do think people tend to not realize that they do have a voice with some of these major corporations. And when we kind of organize and reach out, they do very often, not always, but they often listen. So yeah, so some examples of other things we've accomplished with our corporate advocacy is Google, right at the beginning of the pandemic, started sending out all of these Google uh, tablets, like Chromebooks, online devices that kids could use for online learning. 20 million of these devices were given out to kids without any form of um, parental controls or safety mechanisms turned on on them. Um, so we just started hearing stories of kids being groomed on their school-given device, being exposed to pornography on their school-given device. And we met with Google uh, and it took a couple meetings with them and a couple public calls to action but eventually they finally just flipped the switch and turned the safety settings on by default for these school-given devices. And someone could still potentially take them off. There's ways around it, but it 
made it um, much safer. And other things include, um, you know, we've gotten Instagram and Google to stop allowing adult strangers to direct message children. This seems like it could be a pretty simple default to safety. Um, anyway, so I could go on and on about the corporate side, but I'll just also add, we, in the last few years, have also started a law center, which represents survivors of uh, different forms of sexual abuse against institutions that facilitate that exploitation. So we have some active litigation right now against Twitter, uh, against Pornhub or its parent company, MindGeek, and a few other corporations as well, uh, really looking for um, civil litigation that would give some degree of justice to those survivors, but would also require those companies to do better in the future. Mm-hmm. And and speaking of, of Twitter and, and litigation against Twitter, I want to talk about porn and social media. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, pretty much everyone claims to care about kids accessing pornography. Um, you know, we we both know there are a lot of defenders of adult pornography and in mm-hmm. I'm using quotations here, no one can see, but you know, consensual pornography because of course as we know there's plenty of non-consensual pornography that is labeled as consensual pornography and that's a, mm-hmm. a complicated term to use within the porn industry anyway but you know everyone can agree that kids shouldn't be watching porn and yet so many kids see porn i mean i think that kids are are starting to see porn as early as 11 even earlier you know i've i've Mm -hmm. talked to men um who started watching pornography at like seven and eight years old Mm -hmm. um it's it's practically unavoidable because you know, if you have access to the internet, you're going to see it whether you want to or not. But it's also it's also on social media, and mm-hmm. I want to know why 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 is pornography still on social media when we know that on Instagram, for example, there are minors who who are using that platform. Yeah, it's something that we take extreme issue with, I mean, just exactly like you said, so many children are being exposed. And I think very often parents think that uh, their child won't see it in their day to day. And maybe if they have a safety filter on that stops them from going to a pornography website, that they are locked down like Fort Knox. And it's just not the case. It's, it's pretty much everywhere. Um, I think some of the worst offenders are Twitter and Reddit um, in my mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I think, unfortunately, a lot of mainstream social media companies uh, make a lot of money off of it. You know, it's all about views, how long people are spending on a platform. Um, and also because I think that they haven't been made to realize yet the inherent risks that come with hosting that content. I think we're maybe approaching a greater awareness about that, um, you know, so, yeah, but the fact that they, that it's still so commonplace is, is pretty upsetting. It's something that our Dirty Dozen List and other advocacy efforts are hoping to rectify. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really frustrated that Twitter still hosts so much pornography and, you know, they've, 
you know, they have enough rules against other kinds of content that I guess I'm sort of surprised that that hasn't been addressed yet. Um, and I know that I think technically you aren't supposed to have be able to get a Twitter account if you are a minor. Um, but I mean, considering how much we know about the ties between trafficking and exploitation and sexual abuse and rape, um, and, and minor pornography, so non-consensual pornography, um, I, I, I suppose I would think <laughs> that that would be a good enough reason to, to ban it from Twitter. Um, do you know, I mean, do you know anything about the, what's happening behind the scenes there? Like why, why, um, do these social media companies refuse to, to ban porn? I think for some of them, you know, it's really, they don't think about it. Honestly, as wild as it is, the more and more I have conversations with executives at some of these companies, the more it a little bit boggles the mind how much they just roll products out without doing really robust analyses of how it could have harmful impacts. Um, I mean, almost every tool that gets rolled out in big tech, I feel like does not go through a, a a good trust and safety system. So I think they're not thinking about the harm. I think also in the United States, they view themselves as uh, completely immune from any kind of liability. So they're thinking, well, no one could sue us. Um, and so we're not going to lose any money. We could only benefit by having maybe more people use our platform. So what's the harm in allowing it. Um, and, and of course, I'm sure there's some ideological, you know, belief that pornography is great in, in there too. Um, you know, I'm sure you're familiar in the United States, we have communications act section 230, which says that websites are immune from, um, liability for, um, hope for any content that's posted by third parties. Uh, so like a tweet that someone puts up on Twitter, but <clears throat> A couple of years ago, uh, FOSTA-SESTA was passed, which set, made a carve-out that said, um, except for if the company's knowingly facilitating commercial sexual exploitation. And we have some legislation that's pending right now seeking to make an additional carve-out also if they're um, hosting child sexual abuse material knowingly. So, but the false assessed a law um, carve out has allowed some of these lawsuits to start coming forward. And I think that we're maybe approaching a turning point where companies could start getting some liability um, in the courts for harm that's been inflicted by what they're pursuing, by what they're allowing to host. So I, I think there's a good chance that we're going to see a pretty systemic shift in how companies think about this content in the next couple of years. Nicosi, as you know, of course, was was featured in a recent uh, Netflix documentary called Money Shot um, about Pornhub and specifically about these accusations of, of trafficking um, and, and non-consensual videos being discovered on the site. Um, what did you think about that documentary, first of all? It was an interesting documentary, you know, I mean, the ultimate angle um i i think it ended in a tone and place that i don't think was the correct tone you know it's we we got a space in that documentary like you said so i feel like we were able to make our case um which i think is a good case 
I think in some ways the documentary was maybe trying to move a step or two too quickly through a few things. I think it was framed as the backlash to the backlash um, regarding real children and adults whose sexual abuse and exploitation was uploaded to this website and had traumatic impact on their lives. Um, and it was unfortunate that no survivors were really interviewed in the course of the documentary. Um, you know, our one of our lawyers was able to be interviewed, so we're grateful for that. But I wish that survivors had been able to be interviewed and had been given the same gravitas in the um, documentary that some of the performers who were at times defending the company were given. Right. I found that strange also um, because they spoke with a lot of uh, what they referred to as sex workers. So some women who are in porn. Um, they spoke to representatives of, of Pornhub and people mm -hmm. who work in the industry in other roles. And they spoke to you, but they didn't speak to any of the survivors, which seemed like a really big gap in coverage considering that the documentary was purporting to address these these accusations of, of trafficking and exploitation on Pornhub. Yeah, and there's just a really different, you know, as a, a storyteller, there's just a different impact when you hear someone talk about how they were maybe, for example, there were uh, young women who girls who were 14 years old who were brutally assaulted it was recorded, it was uploaded, it continues to be shared with their friends and family. It was re-uploaded many times, got hundreds of thousands of views, made Pornhub money because there were ads alongside of it. You know, these kinds of stories, when you actually start to wrap your mind around what that experience is, it's just different than, you know, you can hear the facts, that's helpful. But I think it it had a, it had a slant. Yeah. Um, and I mean, what, what was discovered exactly on Pornhub? Right. So, uh, uh Pornhub, unfortunately, uh, and other pornography websites as well, really has profited off of sexual abuse of women, children, um, and men. So for example, uh, hosting and monetizing material featuring sex trafficking victims, uh, videos of children, including there was, you know, a video of a 12 year old child that was viewed hundreds of thousands of times on Pornhub. And it was reported um, multiple times to Pornhub, even by law enforcement, and was allowed to stay up for a significant amount of time before ever being removed. Um, to this day, you know, I'm there's been non-consensual recorded videos of women's sports teams in locker rooms um, undressing that was uploaded to Pornhub. Um, <clears throat> you know, spy cams, generally non-consensually shared content, you know, maybe something that was shared between partners and then was uploaded. There's really this massive problem that um, Pornhub had of allowing anyone to upload content. It's the same really as uh, YouTube in so many ways. And they'll say that they require verification, but that's really only for um, Model Hub, kind of one of their programs to pay out people who are um, 
people who are trying to monetize their own content on on Pornhub. But even in those cases, Pornhub had verified, quote unquote, videos of sex trafficking victims and videos of children on their platforms as well. And you might be familiar, there's um, a girls do porn case that had around 50 or more women who were sex trafficked, um, deceived, forced fraud and coercion into producing videos um, through the Girls Do Porn channel, which was a trusted and verified channel on Pornhub's website. So, I mean, you know, unfortunately, I could keep going and going with examples and stories of, you know, everyone from adults, sex trafficking victims, 12-year-old children, 14-year-old children who had content um, on this platform. And one of the key issues is there's no meaningful age and consent verification for people depicted in content because it's not enough to just verify you know the identity or that someone has an email who's the account holder because very often one person could be uploading videos of a dozen people who might not know that their video is being posted on that website so and to this day um i believe pornhub does not have any meaningful age and consent verification for people being depicted on their platform and this is a wide um this is a wide industry-wide problem similar things are happening on OnlyFans, on x videos on x hamster um but essentially especially in early 2020 this just reality started to come out. Some survivors started speaking out. Um, there was some international letters sent to credit card companies, um, which we were involved in, like Visa and MasterCard and Discover, pointing to this evidence and saying, why are you working with this platform when they're, they seem to be knowingly hosting this content, when people are reporting the content to the platform and it's not being removed? Uh, I believe there's a degree of knowing facilitation at that point, let alone just failure in due diligence um, to have such a high risk industry, if you will call it that, without meaningful verification metrics. So um, and then the New York Times in December 2020 published an expose uh, called The Children of Pornhub that really showed uh, what's happening and they interviewed some survivors, a number of credit card companies, um, and also some mainstream companies that were advertising with Pornhub, cut ties with them um, at that time. And a, um, a Canadian parliamentary committee investigation was launched um, against MindGeek, which is the owner of Pornhub. Um, and yeah, it's been, um, and so now there are a number of, uh, what's the, lawsuits against Pornhub. I believe that there's five active lawsuits against Pornhub or MindGeek in the U.S. right now and a couple internationally as well. It really goes to show that these companies don't, I, I think it goes to show that these companies don't care what happens on their platform so long as they're profiting. Because you would think that something like verification, age verification would be an obvious thing mm -hmm. to to instill on, on these kinds of platforms. I mean, they do it on every social media platform, I believe. Um, in some ways, I mean, they have different ages, but you have to you have to verify in some way 
Um, I mean, I, and in the documentary, in Money Shot, several of the individuals interviewed. So these, um, these, these women who do pornography, who sell their pornography on Pornhub, as well as this one woman, Noelle Perdue, who had worked for Pornhub in the past. Um, they sort of went on and on about how this had been, you know, a big kind of conflict between them and Pornhub. And, you know, everybody had been, had been fighting for verification all this time. And they, they didn't understand why Pornham wasn't doing it. Um, I mean, what's happening now? Is there some kind of verification process? And and you know, like how how did how did that change? Yeah, right now, um, there's not there's still not a meaningful um, verification metric happening on Pornhub. Mm-hmm. Um, for everyone depicted on their platform. Um, But I do think, you know, and you hit the nail on the head with this, I think that there's a lot of progress that can be made, even across lines, even if everyone doesn't, you know, agree on everything, that at the minimum, if these platforms are going to exist, there needs to be meaningful agent consent verification. And I think some performers um, in the industry who are willing to call for that, like I would encourage to them to continue speaking out. We have some legislation that was introduced last year in the United States, and we're expecting it to be reintroduced again this year called the Protect Act, which would require um, meaningful age and consent verification um, for platforms that host pornography. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, I mean, this is a very common sense step that I think a lot of people could unite on. Yeah. I wonder, um, do you have any sense of how much trafficking and or non-consensual videos there are on Pornhub or have been on Pornhub? I don't have any kind of uh, number, I suppose. You know, I have, I know that, you know, there were so there were 50 women who were part of the girls do porn lawsuit, which MindGeek settled with them, by the way. And um, and I would maybe guess roughly, you know, roughly 100 survivors are involved across some of the different litigation that's been ongoing in the last couple of years against them. But, you know, it's very, very difficult for survivors who've had their abuse images posted online to come forward and speak out um, for a number of reasons. So one, they might have been minors at the time. Of course, that's going to be incredibly difficult to speak out. Um, Another one might be they might be adults who initially created um, a video consensually, maybe for a partner, and then it was uploaded. So then they have many layers of shame um, and feel like they might be complicit, which of course they're not. It was not not consensually shared. So that's I would call that still a form of image-based sexual abuse. Um, and then also for survivors, you know, often when they speak out about um, images like that, they start to surface and populate a lot more. M- men, unfortunately, start really looking for those images will sometimes make those videos trend, um, will 
share them with their friends and family, send them to their uh, coworkers, to their boss as a way to try to silence or harass them. Um, so it's it's quite a complicated thing, I think, for many people to speak out about. But I, one metric I do have about the amount of abusive content on um, Pornhub is that in 2020, when the MindGeek executives were investiga- investigated by the Canadian House of Common Ethics Committee, I think I said that right, it's, During the uh, hearing, the Canadian House of Commons Ethics Committee, yeah, Commons Ethics Committee. Okay, um, during during those hearings, it was revealed that Pornhub had reported zero instances of child sexual abuse materials to law enforcement, U.S. or Canadian, um, for over a decade. So they reported zero cases of suspected child pornography from 2008 to 2019 and for most of 2020, all while allowing anyone to post anything with no age or consent verification. So I think that just gives you a bit of a scope of the uh, problem potentially. Yeah. I wonder how these videos, like say a video of a, a trafficked minor, how are men finding these videos on Pornhub? Are they tagged or labeled in a certain way or are they actually advertised or pushed on the platform unfortunately some of them had very obvious titles you know every case is somewhat different but i know of ones where it was as blatant as drugged teen um being a primary part of the title or homeless teen being a primary part of the title And of course, you know, anyone who's been unfortunate enough to spend time really on that website, the amount of the kinds of tags that are available can get quite um, disturbing. And especially if you start to realize that it's not always fantasy (laughs) that's being depicted. Well, it's never really fantasy. It's always a real sex act. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I find most disingenuous about defenses of pornography especially online pornography as it exists today in modern times not in magazines anymore right um and and defenses of of sites like Pornhub is that people will claim you know like oh this is I'm just watching you know regular porn people like to use the term regular porn I'm just watching Mm -hmm. normal porn you know like most of it's just you know two consensual adults just having sex because they want to I'm just watching these you know amateur videos it's just a couple having sex it's nothing terrible I'm not watching any of that violent stuff that abusive stuff I'm not watching you know teen porn or anything like that but I mean I anytime you just go look at Pornhub, not that I'm recommending people do because it's very disturbing. But if you just go and look, it's all—it's almost all disturbing. You know, you'll mm-hmm. you'll immediately see tags of teen and things like that, and of course, um, you know, abusive stuff, violent stuff, um, incest fantasies. You know, stepfather, daughter, babysitter, all of this stuff. You know, it's all—it's. Mm-hmm. It's all disturbing as far as I'm concerned. Um, and and that woman that I mentioned earlier, Noelle Perdue, I remember in the documentary Money Shot, she explained that actually 
that term, that label, that category, teen porn, doesn't really actually necessarily mean <laughs> teen. It's just referring to a body type. Mm -hmm. And I just, I mean, I find that laughable, first of all. But, I mean, it, again, it's so disingenuous because mm -hmm. this is a person who worked for, for Pornhub um, and surely knows what was on the site and surely knows that even if even if in a video labeled teen that person is not literally under 18 the point is to mm -hmm. to depict a teenager yeah it's yeah it's to evoke it and okay so it's the category teen is meant to depict a body type well, what body type a body type that looks like a teenager mm -hmm. also they have a petite body category tag you know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, just like you said, it's, it's not necessary. Um, there's also, you know, just to add to the list of disturbing elements, um, a significant amount of really racist um, pornography exists on Pornhub and other pornography platforms as well. But it's quite fascinating to see that this is like the one area of society where incredibly racist, damaging tropes are never questioned um you know and, and research supports this that black men are depicted as more sexually aggressive um especially against you know white women which is a trope that um that black women are depicted in more derogatory ways it's like it's quite clearly documented uh in the research so you don't even have to go look at it to know that that's true but i think i think in so many ways this issue and connecting it with the issue of, you know, pornography and image-based sexual abuse or non-consensually shared content, but whether on pornography websites or on uh, social media, I think we're starting to bump up as a society against needing to take that next step and understanding the dynamics at play of, uh, of consent and what and what that looks like on film. Like, I, I'm, I'm just really struck by what you said, because I've heard it too, of people saying, well, when I go, I'm not looking at anything incredibly violent. I'm just kind of looking at, quote unquote, normal pornography. But the reality is, is that uh, unless you like really, really deeply know the person who's depicted um, in the content, if you're watching pornography on a mainstream content, you have no idea what's going on behind the camera. And I think people have this conception that, well, if someone is smiling, saying that they're happy to be there, or if even if someone signed a contract, that means that they're happy and consenting. In the girls do porn sex trafficking case, for which the product, um, the production, <clears throat> sorry, the producer is in jail for sex trafficking, for the fact that he sex trafficked these women, he coerced them to sign a contract. Um, or sometimes I hear this with OnlyFans or, and, and with Pornhub and others as well is, well, if they're smiling, they're happy to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, especially a lot of live stream or, um, kind of subscription based pornography. Well, we know cases after cases of women who were smiling at the camera. And for example, we, we know the case of a woman who was smiling at the camera her husband was holding the camera and also holding a baseball bat because she was in an abusive relationship and he was coercing her to create this content so that he could profit off of it. And I think, 
Um, there's just a little bit of a, some, maybe some of it's naiveness, maybe some of it's intentionally not wanting to recognize how murky these waters can start to get. But, um, but yeah, yeah, it's just these, the, the waters do start to get murky really fast. And someone just watching this content, whether it's a moderator, um, for one of these platforms or a viewer, you know, they don't, they don't always know what's going on behind the camera. So it's quite a difficult situation. Yeah, right. I'm glad that you explained all that because I think that the the consent factor is treated as very black and white and it's really not when it comes to pornography um like you say i mean it's it's not that hard to coerce somebody into signing a contract a lot of these women are in abusive relationships or have there's you know like a man or someone behind the scene scenes who's pushing them to do this so that they can make money um a lot of these these women are you know addicted um which i think Mm -hmm. that that makes for really murky territory in terms of consent um and uh, yeah how do you know how do you know when you're watching a video who's consented what's happening what what the situation is for that that young woman um and i mean i i I, i'm curious to know i know that nikosi is representing some of these victims Mm -hmm. i wonder if you could maybe talk about some of the specific stories that that we're we're dealing with here yeah so one of our lawsuits um involves so one plaintiff uh we'll call her jane doe she was just uh, 16 years old when she was drugged and raped and her rape was filmed um which very often happens and so that man really entered into a profit-sharing relationship with MindGeek, the owner of Pornhub, through its Model Hub program. So this is going through the most legitimate way that one really could be uploading content to this website, aside from working with a big major studio. And so um, under the terms of that program, you know, we really argue that MindGeek and uh, Jane Doe's rapist agreed to share profits from the views and downloads of this victimization. And uh, MindGeek reviewed the video, they categorized it, they tagged it, they hosted it. Um, and one of those, one of the videos of Jane Doe was viewed over 2,400 times. Um, and at no time did they attempt to verify her identity, her age, inquire about her status, um, you know, as a victim of trafficking or as an adult, um, or to, you know, do anything really to protect her while the video of her being drugged and raped was sold, downloaded, viewed, and um, <clears throat> and proliferated around Pornhub. Yeah. And, and this was a case where um, you know, the videos were reported and it wasn't immediately taken down. One in, an interesting thing from the uh, documentary was they did interview a former moderator um, in the Netflix documentary. They interviewed a former moderator who shared that, you know, they're just trying to review so many videos in such a short amount of time. And again, I would even say, even if they had more moderators, 
you know, what can you, aside from if you can obviously tell someone's underage, what can you tell about someone's circumstances from the video alone is, uh, is not always substantial, but, but yeah, that's, that's, that's one case of a 16 year old and she, her, I mean, the, the trauma that, that comes from not only that experience of victimization, but then knowing that over 2,400 people watched that, that people likely, that people have downloaded it. People still have that video. Mm-hmm. It's still, it could still be found online. I mean, I've spoken um, with some survivors and they just describe walking down the street and not knowing who has seen them or even sometimes walking down the street and just really fearing that they're seeing recognition in someone's eyes because someone has potentially seen their videos online. It's, you know, that's why, you know, these aren't kind of philosophical or theoretical policy decisions. You know, this is a life sentence of, of trauma that is just, being inflicted on so many people. And so I think, you know, this company and I think others like it, you know, I mean, it's not just this company this is happening with, um, but there really needs to be a significant day of reckoning and legal accountability, I think. For sure. And what are the the laws around pornography in the U.S.? You know, I <laughs> this, forgive me if this sounds obtuse, but I still don't really understand why pornography is legal. You know, why are, mm-hmm. it's not actually legal in Canada in any case. You can't consent to abuse. Um, mm-hmm. And yet what we see on film in pornography very often is abuse um, or sexual assault. Um, why is it legal to essentially consent to abuse, you know, consent to being mm-hmm. choked, hit, slapped, spit on, injured in a variety of ways. All these things happen in pornography routinely if it's being filmed and sold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a bit complicated. So, of course, um, child pornography or child sexual abuse material is, you know, not legal. It's contraband of the highest degree in the U.S. You can't possess or share it. Um but with when it comes to adults, so technically we have an obscenity law that says that obscenity is not legal. The last um, and obscenity would be um, kind of roughly it would be uh, it kind of hardcore explicit pornography, what we're seeing in most online platforms. But it requires um, a jury to find content obscene, so it requires a jury trial. The last time that this was enforced was against a pornographer in 2008, I believe, in California, where a jury found um, his content to be obscene. He was sentenced to jail um, for just a short period of time, but um, his he wasn't allowed to continue. However, um, over the last couple of decades, the Justice Department has really just not had interest in up in enforcing that aspect of the law, cases just aren't being brought. And so kind of de facto, it's um, become uh, considered part of the First Amendment by some, certainly not all, but 
most people don't even realize that the obscenity law is there on the books. And a big reason why the Justice Department stopped enforcing it is unfortunately because they are have with the um, expansion of the internet have become so overwhelmed with child sexual abuse material. I mean, horrifically, I spoke to um, high up officers um, in the DOJ who shared they're barely, they barely have time to investigate cases um, of children older than two years old. Like they're only focused on the most extreme and the most young cases for proactive enforcement on child sexual abuse material. They're so overwhelmed. So their interest or capacity to take on um, this more kind of culturally contentious issue of obscenity is is it's just a pretty weak um, will, I think, political will there. So uh, I, that's a bit complicated, but I suppose I would say, so technically um, content could be found obscene in a court of law through litigation um, or through an investigation, but it's just not really happening right now. And so most Americans would tell you it's completely illegal. Right. Now, you mentioned earlier that MindGeek's executives were investigated by the Canadian House of Commons Ethics Committee. Um, and, of course, the founder of Girls Do Porn was arrested in December. What are some other wins against the industry? Right. So, um, like I said, the um, most major credit cards have uh, <laughs> cut ties. Uh, also, Mainstream companies were really starting to advertise on these pornography platforms. Companies like Unilever and Kraft Heinz were making specific ads to run on these platforms. Um, they've now cut ties and committed to not do that again. So that's um, encouraging. And I think the thing that gives me some of the most hope is the lawsuits is, you know, that survivors are stepping up, that there is this civil litigation happening. Um, and the cases are moving forward. You know, where the case that we're involved in right now is in discovery, uh, in anticipation of a trial. And I think also just greater awareness about the exploitation on these platforms is a significant victory in and of itself as well. But I really think we're at the point of we need to just continue having mainstream companies be aware and not be willing to partner with a platform that is likely knowingly facilitating exploitation and, and then also to try to get legal accountability in the courts. Do you think that it's possible to take down the porn industry? I mean, it's, it's a massive industry. Um, but it's a massive industry that's responsible for a lot of harm. Um, and often when we criticize the industry or talk about exploitation, we're told, you know, you can't ban pornography. It's a free country, free expression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And while I don't think it's necessarily possible to completely ban pornography, I do think, or I hope at least, that there's a way to make it very, very difficult to produce and profit from pornography. So I'm mm -hmm. curious to know if if you think that there is a way to really take down the industry or at least make a major dent. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that. Um, you know, will it... Uh, 
be fully eradicated from the earth, you know, I, I greatly doubt, but I think the scale that it is operating at, um, it can, can absolutely be shrunk to an extreme degree. I think that the amount of, uh, regulatory the cost and the amount of regulatory needs for safeguarding could be massively improved within the industry which would take time and money and infrastructure and it will decrease the scale at which they're operating um and i think that we can have more pathways you know especially if some of these law as these lawsuits continue more pathways for survivors who are harmed to um, to get a degree of justice and for that to be hopefully normalized and not be such a treacherous path. Right now, these lawsuits are a bit pioneering. It's really um, kind of difficult legal work and difficult for the survivors going through it, but I'm hopeful we'll have some victories that ease that road for um, future survivors. And, and I also think we can significantly shift how society views this industry as well. I think that shift is starting to happen, um, even just from the standpoint of younger generations having been exposed to it and knowing what it is. You know, um, it's not a magazine, and anyone who's grown up and and seen it has more of an intuitive understanding of what it is. And and I think as these lawsuits um, continue people can start questioning, you know, is this an ethical industry to engage in in any fashion? Um, and I think we're seeing some of those shifts happen now. Um, so, yeah, so I would say I'm, I'm hopeful for the industry scale to shrink, for there to be greater burdens of safeguarding, for there to be greater avenues towards justice to survivors. Um, that would, again, also shrink any company that that. Uh, missteps that fails it by ex- exploiting people, and uh, and I, oh, I would also say I think that there's a real international movement for protecting children from being exposed to it, um, whether through consumer age verification or device filter laws that are being pushed forward internationally. Um, I think within five years we're going to see that become a new standard as well. Yeah. Great. I'm glad to hear that. Um, what would you say to the individual, you know, the individual who is concerned, disturbed, upset, wants to do something, has no idea to take on a multi-billion dollar industry? What what could the individual do? There's so much. So the good the good news is that we really need every individual to to step up on it. And there's the simple things you know, reading, educating yourself, talking to your friends. I know sometimes that seems like a trite answer, but how we do change societies by not feeling awkward about talking about human rights violations. You know, we should be boldly sharing about this. Um, but then also some substantive things you can do uh, at, we have, of course, uh, a website, endsexualexploitation.org. Um, if you go to endsexualexploitation.org slash Pornhub, you can learn a lot more about the issues on Pornhub. And we have a active petition um, calling for meaningful age and consent verification. Um, and you, you can sign that. That's something that we're um, able to send to international legislators um, and corporations as well. 
You can also go to dirtydozenlist.com on May 2nd. We're announcing our latest um, Dirty Dozen list. And while that's not all um, around pornography platforms specifically, there is a lot of overlap with some of these mainstream companies and how they're normalizing, profiting from, facilitating the pornography industry. So there's easy ways you can take action as well at dirtydozenlist.com. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking with me about all this. And thank you for your work. Uh, It's super important. And I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you so much. I have enjoyed the conversation. Um, Although it's a difficult subject, I really do see, I see a lot of hope. I think we're approaching a turning point. So the more people who band together on it, I think the better. For sure. Thanks again. And have a great night. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at Feminist Current, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted all by myself, Megan Murphy. We have been ad-free, sponsorship-free, wealthy, investor-free, and fully independent since 2012. If you enjoyed this podcast and if you value independent women's media by women, for women, no compromises, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.